Fantasy-animation.org is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Our weekly blog posts are written by professional animators and academics and explore a range of diverse topics from the sexual identity of SpongeBob SquarePants to the practical reality of how to make an animation documentary on a pair of knickers. Our podcasts, just like this one, feature expert guests including Oscar-winning animators, esteemed academics, folklorists and fans, all of whom help take Chris and I on a seemingly never-ending journey through the history and theory of these two overlapping media, mediums and genres. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am, of course, and as always, Alex Sargent. I don't know why you do this to me. You set me up in a way that I'm supposed to say something interesting. And just me, Chris Holiday. Saying something interesting, it would be helpful at some point, Chris. But but we don't necessarily need to today for two reasons. One, we have an interesting film that will hopefully do most of the work for us and that we will be discussing The Last Jedi. Um, we've done The Force Awakens, of course, about 18 months ago, somewhere around that, with Rebecca Harrison, um, which was an interesting chat. We can build on that and listeners can check out that previous episode. And I'm excited to talk about this one because I think this might be both the, the Star Wars film I know least in terms of my overall opinion. I, I both sometimes love it. I think there are bits of it that I don't quite get, but I certainly think it's it's perhaps the most interesting Star Wars movie, particularly in terms of ideas of fantasy, cultural fantasy, the way in which the film plays with who gets to fantasize, who gets to be part of the story and who doesn't. And I think the way it crafts or attempts to craft onto a pre-established sort of mythology of Star Wars is really, really fascinating. So I'm excited to talk about it. Chris? I am also, and, and as as you know, I'm I'm very much the yeah the Star Wars novice in the in the virtual room. But I've, I'm interested in I think world building. This one is obviously the middle of the three newer ones, and actually um, I'm, I'm interested in fictional world and fictional world theory and and how this film works really nicely in some of the ways people have, have written about um, the design and expansive worlds of, of science fiction. Of course, with a little bit of, of visual effects in, and also I'm really interested in sort of visual intertextuality which i guess is really important for something like star wars but um yeah i'll let's go let's go for it so that's one reason why you don't necessarily have to say something interesting the other is that we have a very special guest joining us um to help us through um the the, the, the murky world of, of last jedi both on and off the screen um helen o'hara who is the uh, editor at larger empire as well as a freelance jo- journalist for a number of publications um she's also the author of the ultimate Se- uh, superhero movie guide as well as her recent book women versus hollywood the fall and rise of women in film where helen charts through basically the the problem that currently exists within uh, mainstream uh, filmmaking uh, and potential solutions which this film dramatizes nicely helen and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, that's great. We are excited to have you. Um, I guess we'll start with the movie. Um, uh, what's your thoughts on The Last Jedi? Where are you with it? Did you get to review it at the time? And, and, and have you seen it a few times since? What's your thoughts on the film? Yes, I've seen it a few times. I didn't, I don't think I reviewed it at the time. I had done The Force Awakens for Empire and it had been very stressful because I had sort of an hour to turn it around before our press deadline and I was the only one allowed to see it. So there was no, you know, conversation to be had with colleagues and, and which sometimes helps you clarify your thoughts if you have to write something quickly uh so this one by by comparison was a breeze because i just had to go and see it and then talk <laughs> about it on the podcast a little bit later which was great but i have to say i was unconvinced first time i, I came out of it this the first time and i was like yeah it might be a three-star film like it was it felt really jerky at times and kind of inconsistent at times and it is the Star Wars film that has grown on me most and every time I see it again I like it more and I still think it's really really interesting um some of the potential of this film was not acted upon in the follow-up let's say but uh, but I think it it tries something that almost no other Star Wars film has done in a way that I just love absolutely I I think that's exactly the experience that I had watching it this time around. I saw it once at the cinema and I kind of I kind of loved bits of it and didn't like other bits mm, of it. And, yeah. and the bits that I didn't like, I, I liked more. And the bits that I liked, I really liked this time. 
and I think it's that freshness that the film both suffers from and, and celebrates, right? Yeah. It's a film that seems to be quite deliberately trying to sort of wrestle the baggage of being a Star Wars movie whilst trying to tell a story that isn't just the same film over and over again because even by sort of Return of the Jedi which I think I saw in your bio is your was the first film you remember seeing at the cinema or your, is it your favorite film certainly one of them yeah it, yeah, it okay. was one of the ones I remember seeing first yeah which is which is basically by the time you even get to Star Wars 3 is this is the sequel you know the, yeah. the sort of remake almost of episode it's basically the same plot already so by the time we got to the end of this first trilogy we'd run out of plot so I thought what the film does in terms of the last Jedi is sketch out a very interesting potential future for the mm. for the for the franchise, which it sadly I'm not sure got to then realise. But were you struck by the sort of the daring nature of it the first time round, or did that come in later viewings? I think that I kind of saw that it was trying something different, but I think I just find it uneven first time around, and I you know I find the casino scenes. And that sort of that whole side plot, a, a slight distraction, and I didn't quite understand how it fitted in, and that has kind of smoothed out for me as I've seen it more often. But, but yeah, it does some, and it still feels sometimes when you're watching it like the screenwriter, you know, knows what line goes there in response to that line, and then tries to do exactly the opposite. And sometimes it it feels deliberately contrarian rather than effectively surprising I think so I think that struck me first time around you know Luke throwing away the, the lightsaber I get it because you know she hands over the lightsaber and what's he supposed to do all right let's go save the galaxy you know we know that beat is coming and then they do completely the opposite of that but to a degree that almost did feel kind of disrespectful or, or challenging in, in, in a way that we don't expect our Star Wars films to be first time I saw it. So it took me a little while to kind of appreciate the possibilities that it opened up. And then, of course, I got even more frustrated at the last film. I don't want to spoil anything if, if anybody out there hasn't seen it, Christopher. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the, the last film really had an entire open playing field as a result of this. Like, they, they completely threw away any kind of plans. And, and the last film instead kind of closes the universe up again a little bit. Mm. And, and I think that's... In retrospect, that makes this film really frustrating and disappointing, but not because of what's in here, but just because of what isn't built upon next time. Yeah. Well, as you as you uh, kindly gestured to, I'm very much somebody who's sort of, one, seeing this film for the first time, but also don't really know what it what it's anticipating or perhaps do know what it's trying to set up, even if then it doesn't perhaps fill, fulfil that. What I do know about these three films and and actually some of the right kind of you know scholarship on these on these films yeah. is really about this broad baggage that, that Alex mentioned this idea of baggage this idea of sort of fan backlash and and how these films seem to be in kind of conversation with very much in conversation with the fan communities that that appreciate and judge it and there's this really strange reciprocal relationship and 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 so I'd love to sort of I think probe a little bit the, mm. the, the gendered obviously the gender dimension to this the gender dimension to the baggage and then how that ties up with with um with your book because obviously the, the this idea of the the double standard that underpins a lot of and actually i'm interested in relation to aging actually i think the the idea of digital de-aging is particularly striking in that sense but obviously your book is women versus hollywood rather than women and <laughs> hollywood or yeah. women in hollywood and 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 the, and the verses is obviously nice because it plays with the sort of the the, the forces of good and the forces of evil in, in a film like Star Wars. But also, it immediately ex you know exactly as you say, you know, it sets up a confrontational relationship. And actually, I, I, I was would be interested to know where this mm. film fits in the rise and fall that your book is about. Is this a and, and I don't know much about the the mythology of the the series, but um, is this a rise? Is this a fall in relation to the the kind of gendered element of of the Star Wars universe? It's a bit of both, I think. <laughs> so yeah, so th this is one of the things I kind of, I, I, I devoted a chapter to in the book, which is th this idea that we keep coming back to brand names. And, and those brand names are things, you know, some of them based on legends, King Arthur, Robin Hood, some of them based on properties that have been around for 100 years or more, Sherlock Holmes or Tarzan or John Carter. And then all, all these 80s uh, films that an entire generation of filmmakers grew up with. So we still get Terminators and Aliens and Star Wars and Indiana Jones are coming back, you know. So 
What does that do to changing Hollywood? If we're relying on all of these male-dominated, very familiar brand names, and really the only female-led one I could think of on a similar scale is probably Pride and Prejudice, which actually hasn't been filmed that much. It's been more TV shows. So how do you, maybe Little Women actually as well. Anyway, but how do you kind of get past that if you are trying to change Hollywood, if you are trying to open up the doors and make it a bit more representative and a bit more diverse? Um, and, and just, and I, I stress in the book as well that that's not just because that's morally the right thing to do. It's also because it makes the stories more interesting. It gives them mm -hmm. a different spin, a different feel. Um, but if you are trying to do that and you have these established mm -hmm. properties, how do you work with them? So do you make Sherlock Holmes a woman? You know, do you tell us Enola Holmes instead? Mm -hmm. Or do you introduce new characters like Star Wars did in these two films where there are central female characters in strong roles? Um, strong, not in terms of physical or use of the force, but in terms of having an actual interesting role to play, a nuanced character. And I think that's what these films um, do well. I think, you know, Force Awakens introduced them. I think Last Jedi really builds on them. It gives us Admiral Holdo, who I think is absolutely freaking fantastic. I love her. But in particular, it gives us Rose and Ray. And that's where a lot of the hate for this film came from. Actually, Holdo got a bit as well, but Rose and Ray in particular. Because there was this tendency, and it came up with Force Awakens, but particularly with Last Jedi, because it did confound expectations to the extent that it did. There was this sense that they're trying to take Star Wars away from us. Us being white straight males. And there was this backlash and this kind of outcry and, and this sense of being deprived in some way never mind that there are loads of white straight males in these films like loads of them uh, but it was it was seen as this kind of outrage and there was this really horrible campaign against the film in general against ryan johnson a little bit but in particular against kelly marie tran um, who, who absolutely got it in the neck because mm. women of colour on social media get much more abuse than their white counterparts. So look at with the 2016 Ghostbusters, Leslie Jones got it far worse than any of her co-stars as well. And that is a sense of gatekeeping by a fandom that believe that the, these films should only represent them going forward. Even with new characters, even if you're bringing people into this universe, it's still got to be about them. And, and I think it, I, th I think that's one of the good things that this film tried to do is actually open it up and go, no, this is for other people. And you see that working when you see lots of little girls dressed up as Ray. You see that it has connected with a new generation. Um, and the little boys can dress up as Kylo Ren and they can dress up as Hux and they can dress up as Poe and Finn. And, you know, there's a lot of options for little boys as well. But there was this sense that something is being taken away from us. And you saw this in the criticisms that Rey is a Mary Sue, as if Luke Skywalker wasn't the biggest Mary Sue who ever Mary Sued. <laughs> I mean, he just... So I do, I, I'm assuming people know that term, but it's this idea that you create a female character who is sort of idealised and who has no real problems. I, I mean, seriously, Luke Skywalker learns the Force in a day and a half and Rey isn't allowed to? Come on, seriously. So, yeah, so I think... They're trying to do the right thing, but I think the fan backlash shows how far we still have to go and shows how much work there essentially still is to be done. Uh, there's there's so much to unpack in that really mm. fascinating take on the movie, and luckily we've got a bit yep, of time yep. to do it. But um, I guess to, to start us off, um, I think I think this idea of I'd like to know a little bit more about what, what you think this you know this this there's this fan culture. That seems to have, you know, this trying to, that they are trying to take it away from us. Yeah. Who is who is, who is they? they? <laughs> um, yeah. Do you, or who do you think the fan culture projects onto this this notion of they? And that would be a really interesting place to start. I think. So they think th this particular group, and it is a small subsection of fandom. This is not general Star Wars fandom. Yeah. I, I want to make that clear. They're a very small and noisy subsect. Um, they think it's social justice warriors. That is the term they use. You'll see sometimes online SJW. That's social justice warriors, which is apparently a bad thing, despite the fact that every hero in every film in film history is basically an SJW to some degree or other. I mean, Superman, 100%. Batman, for sure, you know. But yet being an SJW is, is apparently a bad thing. So that's what they think it is. They think they, they buy into this concept of a culture war and they genuinely think that the culture war is coming from the left. And um, 
and that people are trying to therefore kind of appropriate something from them. They also do seem to blame Disney in particular. And not just Disney, but... I mean, Disney are laughably bigger than the nearest competition at this point, And therefore, they do control a lot of the cultural um, landscape of our childhoods. You know, they, they, they own Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Pixar and Disney and Marvel. They, they, they have colonized our childhoods to a large degree. And that is potentially a problem and a sort of emotional monopoly that, you know, we as a society might have to reckon with at some point. But but Disney have seen the dollar value in diversity, in representation, in widening the scope. And they've also seen the PR value in not only catering to the same old section of the audience. And therefore, they are, I think, to a greater or lesser degree, and we can discuss their shortcomings, but they are trying at least to, to somewhat address these shortcomings. And then that really riles these these mostly, let's be honest, guys up because it makes it seem like the, the 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 man the man in charge is against them i i was struck in that um, i that answer in that it's i i think you're right in that there's something about the fact that this is a franchise that doesn't belong to the people who um is perceived to have owned it in the first place mm. and i think i think it links very nicely to another chapter in your book that i found extremely striking about the you know the the influence of the auteur theory in, mm. in kind of and mainstream appreciation of cinema uh which is a theory sort of us you know film academics have to sort of teach every year and we know that well we basically spend our time banging on about how outdated and, and ill-conceived <laughs> uh this theory is and yet then when you get your assessments due in all students or 90 percent of them write glowing essays about how the auteur theory is a wonderful you know romantic notion that we should apply to because you know they're all young and they all want to be filmmakers so you, you mm. kind of get it um but you, you articulate very nicely that the problems in that what that articulates is is not only a way of filmmaking that seems skewed towards the masculine but yeah. but has also quite literally helped us celebrate a lot of white men at the expense of the you know, often much more multicultural production culture surrounding them, yeah? And you give lots of examples of, of you know, female labour that has been completely eradicated from our popular conceptions of film history mm. because everything, every single everything. moment in Goodfellas belongs to Martin Scorsese, you know, you know, despite all the work that goes into it, despite, um, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think what's interesting is that so Star Wars is a film that's been taken away from its white male... Um, auteur George Lucas who never really was a sort of person that had particular creative control over much anyway or at least there's a thorny relationship we could think out there and given to Disney this mm. corporate committee who 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 somehow both managed to exp expound sort of you know a right-wing uh, capitalism is great kind of value right. from one hand <laughs> and also seem to celebrate this sort of the nefarious liberal elite out there kind of taking control of things and making things more woke against yeah. our will yeah it's very conf confusing yeah. who the bad guy is but they're pretty <laughs> sure you, you know you i should i should actually specify it's not just of course disney it's particularly mm -hmm. kathleen kennedy sure. who was put in charge of lucasfilm and that's another hate figure that they come in with i mean the point is, with, with all three of these new films, and in fact the Star Wars stories around them as well, they are all white male directors. Like, let's not get crazy woke here. You know, we now have Patty Jenkins lined up to make a film. We now have Deborah Chow lined up to make a Star Wars film. But we haven't had anybody other than, than white men direct Star Wars films for the big screen ever at this point. So, you know, wokeness only goes so far. So I, within all of these debates that I was sort of trying to, to get up to speed with and thinking about um, Kelly Marie, mm. uh, Marie Tran's role in the film then as a sort of, because there's, I mean, it, it, when we're talking about, um, and what always strikes me about the Star Wars world are, are, the, are the taxonomies that exist within the world. You are different types of, of people. And this is obviously, you know, Alex will be able to tell you about fantasy and science fiction's relationship to allegory in that sense and the way in which these different divisions play out in the, in the real world. But obviously these kinds of taxonomies are always um, about the way that we understand the meaning of those classifications. Um, they're acknowledging about who's able to... Um, permit, mm. who's able or permitted to intervene, who's able to be able to be centred as a person, who's able to uh, participate, who owns knowledge, the ways in which uh, in, in uh, Kelly Marie Tran's uh, 
case racialized bodies sit within structures or institutions that is then mapped into her role in a film where she is I mean for me and I was reading about her role as sort of the audience surrogate and the and how she sort of personifies the face mm. of the, the Star Wars fan in the film because of her wonder that she sort of experiences when she sees people that she knows and is familiar with um, and uh, funny enough Doctor Who did exactly the yeah. same thing with a character <laughs> also called Rose in that she, the, they were like the first episode called Rose of the reboot is about her travelling with the Doctor they land in a museum that's filled with artefacts from previous Doctor Who episodes and she goes what's that what's that and you sort of fall along and learn about the world of Doctor Who in the same way on the, at the same time as she does. And so I wonder whether the fact that she in the film, Kelly Mee Tran's character Rose Tico, is is because she's a woman of colour, but also she's a fat she's a fan mm. and, and that's 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 really gonna put people's nose out of out of joint. You know, let's make Snoke more woke. <laughs> <laughs> well do you know what's interesting is I actually think the the surrogate for the particular kind of fan who is complaining about these films is actually Kylo Ren, which is a whole other discussion. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I think there is an element. I think, and this is again something I said in the book. But so forgive me for kind of repeating myself. But I think that women and people of color are taught from a fairly early age. If you're a film fan, you have to identify with, and again, sort of straight white men, cis, mm-hmm. able-bodied. You know, we, we can continue the list of of adjectives but we are taught that those are the people who matter in cinema that those are the heroes and we have to kind of learn to empathize with those characters and see ourselves through those characters to find our way into these films um so you know i'll i'll identify with marty mcfly or elliot when i watch back to the future or et because those are the characters that are there for me there's nobody else that looks more like i do and i think Men are not necessarily taught the same thing because there are there's such a wealth of characters for them to gl- to glom onto. So when they are essentially asked by a film to identify with and through the eyes of a Rose, a Kelly Marie Tran, they something sparks and they just they they don't know how to react. I think and again, not all men. Hashtag not all men. Like this is not saying everybody does it, but I do think this is part of the backlash to this particular film is that they just couldn't make that leap because they haven't had any training they've never been asked to do that there have always been all of these these white men in their shoes and that's why you get somebody like Poe Dameron who I mean I think Oscar Isaac actually has some you know Middle Eastern blood and South American blood I don't wish to sort of whitewash him but he is kind of accepted as one of them in a way that that um, for example John Boyega is not and there was this outcry at the film that Holdo wasn't listening to Poe and that Holdo didn't explain her plans to Poe. But she's not answerable to Poe. He is her inferior in a military power structure. On what planet, literally, does she owe him any explanation at all? And yet for these fans, they couldn't fathom that the that the man would not be at the centre of that conversation and would not be owed the chance to kind of lead that conversation and and therefore saw her role as very usurping and everything else. And of course, you know, the film uses that to make you suspect that something's up with her, that she's untrustworthy and so on. We're, we're meant to identify with Poe, I think, at that moment and sort of be like, mm, can we believe her? But, like, it worked to an enormous degree to the point where they kept mistrusting her even after she'd proven herself. And and I think that is this lack of empathy. But isn't it interesting that the language that you use to describe these sorts of broader um, questions around identity, politics and so forth, training, resistance <laughs> and obviously power struggles, these are all things that the Star <laughs> the Wars films. films are about. But this is, this is it, because all of these films, the... the, the message is always one of social justice always it's always the underdog fighting for justice it's always individuals fighting for a chance it's always people fighting for respect when they have been downtrodden and again there's just this complete failure to make the connection well, it's interesting that it's, you can imagine, you know, certain fans watching, you go, yeah, you can you can engineer resistance. You can't. You can't. <laughs> you can. And there's that, and that really interesting kind of that, yeah, the language. And I wonder whether it's that proximity between um, what the Star Wars films are about. And we talked kind of before we started about the relative similarity, self-similarity across these, these films. And actually, when I was watching the opening crawl to this one, I thought, 
I have I seen this? I thought I'd, <laughs> there's a resistance. Yeah, I've definitely seen this. Um, that sort of self similarity, and this is obviously how genres mm. work, and and they are both blueprint and and contract. Uh, but it seems like the, the these the, the structures of these films in particular set themselves up to be about the things that people often don't can't quite get their head around in relation when it when it becomes a question of identity so when it becomes a question of intersectionality or when it becomes a question of the the, the racialized body and and all this sort of stuff so this whole thing about who's able to participate and who owns knowledge mm. is something that happens in the fiction mm. and in the in the theater yeah. and and it's that sense of irony that i that is sort of it, we are literally the the um and this is showing my vast star wars knowledge we are literally the lightsaber that's hovering between the two and it's like <laughs> can you not see can you not see the irony of this moment but um yeah yeah i i kind of i, I really having only seen it once i can totally imagine a world in which i keep going back to this one mm. as a sort of like it's grow it's a grow it really is a grower really and, and i think so the one thing you said there i think is the is the central problem that this new era of Star Wars has has struggled with and is maybe beginning to figure out with The Mandalorian but didn't really entirely figure out with these three films which is what makes it a Star Wars film what what distinguishes Star Wars from every other space opera out there and if it's not about the the Skywalker family what is it does it have to be about the Skywalkers is that the thing that makes it a Star Wars film there are these these kind of questions that the the franchise is still kind of reckoning with and tr- still kind of trying to figure out how far can you get away from the Skywalkers and still be Star Wars. And that is difficult. And I get that the fans might not be 100% satisfied with all the answers they've come up with so far. I, I, I'm not sure I have been. But it, it is something that they're still kind of working towards, I think. I wonder if uh, what's one of the things that struck me about watching the film this time is that... Uh, Perhaps what's the the first film, the first sort of you know the seventies trilogy does with with the Empire mm. that these films try to sort of make new nuance is that the, is that they're very much sort of presenting a form of of um, imperialism or or a form of power that we might sort of you know critique now as sort of you know not properly expressing the you know the Hannah Ardent you know. Um, banality of evil problem yeah. which is that you know it, it and, and it very much speaks to the sort of you know a certain generational mentality of oh i can't be racist because i don't have any overt <laughs> racist thoughts or like you know i can't be the emperor because i'm not dressed in a black cloak with, where, with yeah. stormtroopers <laughs> surrounding yeah. me um and it's that kind of that coding of of the empire as this sort of well i think we've talked before about sort of you know the, the use of world war Two imagery in the yeah. first movie but actually the way that sort of reappropriated in this film very much makes it feel and the way that these these sort of you know these white male captains are made brattish um mm. in the film makes them speak much more to sort of alt-right you know contemporary evil contemporary uh, prejudice on display and, and there's an uncomfortability with that I, I, you know I was, yeah. I was i was like okay what are the things people hate about this movie and then you know number one is apparently like the bit at the beginning where they do the silly gag about um you know like the mobile phone <laughs> still thing, which, holding for hugs which yep. is you know which is i guess tonally a little bit abrasive but it's yeah. it's, it's it's you know all right it is i mean funny, they're, they're, it's funny and fine but what it does is that moment there's something broader which is that these sort of you know peter Cushing has been replaced by a silly boy. Yeah. Um, a silly, easy, manipulative boy who is so blinded by rage that um, that he doesn't, he can't think things through properly. And mm. that's who Kylo Ren is. Yeah. Uh, Kylo Ren is a brat. Um, and, and, uh, and so and is a, Hux. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so is Hux. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I wonder if it's, it's almost the problem with the first tr- trilogy is that people couldn't see themselves enough in it. And mm. the problem with this one for fans seems to be they can see themselves a little bit too much in it. And there's that sense of being attacked by their own thing. By their, I think of... there's, yeah, I think there's probably something to that. Cause, cause you're right. It does undermine not their capability for evil. They're still very, very capable of doing mm. horrific things, but they're not cool. Uh, in the same way that maybe Vader or Cushing yep. were in the past, Grand Moff, Moff Tarkin, I should say, and um, and even the stormtroopers, we get a little bit more of a sense. These are children who were kidnapped. These are child soldiers brainwashed into doing what they do, and they are mm-hmm. terrified by it, and they don't want to be there. And that's almost, you know, that's how we were introduced to Finn, who I think is a fantastic character, and I think was 
underused in this film and absolutely thrown away in in the third film he's he's mm. it is it is the great great failing the single biggest thing wrong with this trilogy is what they did actually to finn not to what they did to some other people but i do think so so after the first film and i think i said in my review i said that kylo ren might be the best star wars character ever and i got dog's abuse for that after the first film but after this one people started coming around and going you know what you might be mm. on something there because he is just He's really interesting and he is kind of the bad guy as a fanboy. He is kind of the neo-Nazi. He's the guy who looks at those figures and goes, you know what, maybe they were onto something. Despite having every reason in the world to know good from evil, he still is trying just out of honestly sheer bloody mindedness to find something in evil. Uh, and. And yeah, I think that absolutely speaks to the alt-right uh, in our time. And I think it speaks to the the central sort of contradiction of Kylo Ren is that he's a smart guy really, really trying hard to be stupid. And I feel like, you know, if, if anything sums up the internet, then it's probably that. Um, it, it's people who know better just enjoying throwing themselves into these waters of insanity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And... and the part of the ritual was against that. I, th I think another part of the, of the, the sort of the reaction seemed to be sort of the treatment of the so-called legacy characters, mm. the way in which um, there was a sense that uh, this, what this film was doing was sort of sweeping them out of the way or betraying the integrity of character, you know, which I think is interesting to talk about, particularly as it seems to be directed largely at Luke. Whilst yeah. I think the film does very almost, as much as it does kind of interesting things with Luke, it does equally interesting things with Leia yeah. um, that would be worth unpacking. But yeah, did you have any thoughts on that? So I'll talk about Leia first of all, because um, I have loved her all my life, basically. But she is... Um, they were obviously hamstrung here by Carrie Fisher's death. Like, first of all, let's just say that straight up. They, they were hamstrung by it. I think if this was Luke's film, the next film was going to be Leia's film. I think there was going to be a big sort of emotional showdown between Leia and Kylo Ren. It makes emotional sense and it's kind of what they tried to do anyway, but I don't think they had enough um, Carrie Fisher footage to 100% make it work in the third film, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what they were going for. And, and so her death completely changed everything in, in that sense and completely changed, I think, the, the structure of what they were, were planning. So that I will kind of forgive. In terms of Leia now having force powers, it's been established she has force powers. It's been a thing in, you know, extended universe books. I know they're not canon anymore, but like it's it's something that the fans were totally fine with until, you know, 20 minutes into this film when suddenly they're all up in arms. So again, they, they said that that was a Mary Sue. I, I just don't think it is. Leia, has, Leia is Luke's twin. Of course she would have powers. Of course she had no time to develop them, but of course they were there. And we even get a little flashback in the third film to kind of further extend that. Right, in terms of Luke, I get what they're saying to an extent. So that again, what, what I was saying before about this, um, this sense sometimes that, that the screenplay tries to think of the obvious thing and then do the opposite. I think that affects Luke quite a lot. And I think there are a lot of those kind of moments where Luke pulls the rug out from under you and and does completely the opposite of what you want him to do, never mind what you expect him to do. And that is quite hard as a fan to watch, especially first time around. But I also think it's a really interesting and, and quite quick and effective way of explaining that this is not the Luke we've known and that this is someone 30 years later who is completely haunted by and shaped by guilt, who has cut himself off from the force, who's cut himself off from his family, who essentially can't live with himself. Like he can just about live with himself, but can't live with anybody else, you know? So mm. I, I think that's quite an interesting turn for that character. And and essentially the, the objection seems to be, but I wanted him to be badass, but he is immensely badass at the end. So what's your problem, really? You know, and then they say, oh, he's too badass at the end. He shouldn't be able to do those things. And I remember Ryan Johnson tweeting a picture of the, you know, official Lucasfilm Jedi handbook or whatever from back in the day, which literally says that Jedi can force project themselves across galaxies. So it's, you know, what are you really complaining about? I, I genuinely, I, I can see that there's a little bit of kind of, jarring uh, of sensibilities to begin with but after that just like take a deep breath and go with it I, I don't I don't get it I don't get but, it but but it also it speaks to you know 
again a growing issue of, of you know it's I guess it's an interesting thing about being a fan of something that 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 you've had for years and mm. you've had a plenty of time to fantasize about what new versions of these stories might tell and it's this 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 hatred that you're not doing the thing that I imagined you might do yeah which it seems this seems really interesting because Star Wars didn't do the thing we imagined it might mm. do when it first came out because there wasn't a Star Wars before it. So it's this, you become a fan because you are presented with a story that you find resonate, re- resonates or is innovative or does things you weren't expecting and excites you. And then once you are a fan, all you want it to do is the same thing over and over again or or or, but, or even just a version that you've imagined will go in a different way. But I don't think that's what you do want, actually. And I, I think that that's, it's a really interesting thing because I think it's what Marvel, for example, has succeeded in not doing. They have given us a very loose spin on classic comic books like Civil War or at the moment on WandaVision. There's a there's definitely things drawn from House of M and the Visions and things like that. But they're not adapting comics. They have basically never adapted a comic for those movies. And they have not always given us what we wanted. And they have given us these twists, like the one in Iron Man 3, which I know some fans still complain about, but I think is a genius piece of Mm -hmm. filmmaking. So you can absolutely pull the rug out from under people and still succeed in winning over the fans. It just has to be really, really good. And I guess for those fans who still complain about this film, maybe it wasn't good enough. But but I do feel like they just need to watch it a couple more times because it really smoothed out for me. So this actually chimes this this whole thing about essentially the games of make believe mm. that we play with with artwork, um, and as as luck would have it, I've taught a seminar this week hey. about fiction about fictional worlds and actual and possible worlds and this idea that that um, so there's a writer philosopher and the students hate me because it's <laughs> horrible it's horrible to read <laughs> yeah yeah sure 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 yeah um, just get that out of the way now so for any students that are listening I am sorry um, but but they talk, but this this writer Kendall Walton talks about um, props and he says that films are props and artwork is props and dolls are props these are all props that we play with as as part of our engagement with them and then he specifies represent Representational works, i.e., figurative painting, films, comic—that that branch of props that make it easier for us to imagine—and um, it's really about yeah, the games of make-believe. We play a game with make-believe as much as we do with a doll, as we do mm. with a the uh, you know Mona Lisa. I, I play a game with it, but he says we must never confuse the game. Um, you know the world of our game with the world of the work, right? Because we can make assumptions about all kinds of things in in the Mona Lisa, but we they always need to be anchored to what's in there. And he says there's often a disconnect between the world that you see and the 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 world that you then construct out of those propositions mm. in your mind that often starts to go off. And it's mm. it, that's how really how fandom mm-hmm. works. That's how canons work. You mentioned earlier the idea of the canon. This is what this is not what films or this is not what TV does this is the doctor who mythology doesn't do that which works under the assumption that each new entry doesn't have the possibility to change the template or whereas yeah. presume but presumably can the way that canons work is you know i've i've read a lot about i'm going to do my third and therefore i get to keep the match ball reference to doctor who now um but i remember all the kind of comic relief episodes yeah. that that don't aren't really considered canon then some people go oh no they're canon now and it and and and, and so the, i think it's the the episode the curse of the fatal death from like the 90s which has got about four or five doctor who's in it um joanna lumley rowan atkinson it's you know like a children in need or comic relief special something like that um and, and I remember a more recent one with, with David Tennant and Peter Davison where they meet and Time Crash, I think it's called. I don't know why I say I think. I know full well it's called Time Crash. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but it's this idea about, okay, so when these new texts come along, um, we we have to arbitrate. You mentioned gatekeeping. I have to be very careful about their relationship to, to the canon um, rather than assuming they've come in and they've changed what the canon might be or they've changed the there is this is again how genres work there is no there's no default western per se but each new western can enter into a mixing or a melting pot and have the ability to change our ideas of what westerns are um, but it's almost like it's almost like a yeah. recipe though isn't it like you know there are you know everybody's granny let's say has a different take on Roast potatoes. I mean, I, I, roast potatoes. Roast potatoes. Right, but but there, but you know, there's there's going to be some kind of tuber in there, even if your granny makes it with sweet potatoes, and there's going to be some kind of fat to roast them in, and they're going to be heated in by some kind of source, even if it's I don't know, burying them in the sand on the beach. There's you know, there's going to be common elements. 
that are involved. And, and it's just a question of how much you can push that. And I think that's what's interesting about this, these attempts to expand the Star Wars mythos mm. is, is how far you can go. And, you know, Mandalorian's going in one direction. You know, we're now talking about series is set in different timelines, you know, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, uh, in the future, in the past. Like, where do we kind of fit these new stories in so they don't mess with what we have but also work on their own mm. terms I guess but I, I think this is this is I mean um, we've me and Alex have met, have many a conversation about James Bond movies both on air and off mm. air and actually uh, writing on on the Bond novels Umberto Eco talks about the Bondian category is really a chess game so the pieces stay the same the potatoes the oil probably the cooking time to some extent there's a degree of flexibility yeah, yeah. in that sense um, but the moves that they make will always be different so the game yeah. is always composed of the same parts um, and actually but the way that they move and it seems like the, the, the Star Wars universe is, is caught between the chess pieces that you want the legacy the legacy characters the legacy characters played by the same actors that's an extra the extra element to this um, which obviously this film recast a couple of them due to, to failing health and, and, and um, mm. illness and, and, and so forth but so you have that element to it but then you have okay so the, the way in which characters move so it is a Star Wars film because the characters are in play and they're all lined up on the chessboard and then they're ready to do whatever they do but then what Ryan Johnson's done is move that over there but it's still a Star Wars game it's just a just a, a different just a different way of playing mm. But I, but I want I wonder if the difference between say Star Wars and Marvel because it's because it's interesting that as far as I'm aware at least you know the the more I guess the more daring Marvel gets and I don't think I like Marvel movies a lot but I'm not sure they've got that daring really you know but they but they go more daring than say Oof. well you know I I I think I we I can think, have another conversation I think, about I think, that. I think we knew <laughs> I think we knew what was going to happen after the finger slap I will I will say but yes we'll we'll have to do another episode on that another time but. Okay, but yeah, just just sure. did you think that the finger would actually snap in the first movie? Because uh, I wasn't sure of that. Well, that's at all. fair. That's 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 a moment of death. So anyway, so yes, so let's let's, anyway, let's yeah. accept <laughs> accept that they are more daring, and I'll happily uh, climb down on my horse for that. Um, but 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 the Fran's reaction to that is actually largely positive. It would seem, unless unless yeah. there's a undercurrent that I don't know about. Um, there's a, a very small minority, but in no way like the last Jedi sure. got. For okay, example. so 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 what's the difference between those two franchises? Well, I guess thinking through it in terms of I'm obsessed with like rhetorics of different types of fantasy. What Marvel has always been, or at least the, the films have been, have they been set upon this trajectory of expansionism? Aren't they? They're about expanding one's horizons um the stories the pleasure of the you know of the pieces coming together uh if this is a game if this is a jigsaw if franchises can be seen in that way the pleasure is let's add more bits on now we're going over to this side of the galaxy we're going to make it galactic rather than just on earth yeah uh, and apparently now we're going to go dimensional as well and that and that's part of the fun you know. let's let's increase the stakes at every step and everything's about in a way i guess therefore you know on a raw sort of level of of logic it's expansionist and progressive it goes forward it doesn't stay still but star wars has always been about a rhetoric of staying still it's about restore restoration restore the republic restore the thing and the point is is that it's interesting that that all these stories are about rebellion but 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 mm. they're not about what happens after the rebellion they're all about getting things back to some point in time where things were perfect but we don't get to see what that looks like we just get to see the rebellion yeah so okay so i have a lot of thoughts on this <laughs> so first of all i think uh i think yeah there is a small minority of unhappy marvel fans but generally speaking they're happy and i think that's generally because the films are good and i i, I really don't think we can stress that enough that the films are, like the worst marvel films are okay and the best ones are bloody fantastic as blockbusters go i don't think you can do any better um the other the, the interesting comparison might actually be the DC films because those fans have been let down a lot in recent years and there are there is a lot of anger and tension and hostility in in some of those fandoms hashtag not all DC fans um, that that I think you don't really get in the Marvel in the Marvel Kingdom because they've been so well catered to in recent years but your point about sort of progression is really interesting because that is one big difference between Marvel and Star Wars in this era and these attempts at Star Wars stories and everything as well. Every Marvel movie, there's a kind of sense of building to something, at least as far as the Infinity movies. There's a sense of building up to something. There's a sense of interlocking stories. There's a sense of one building on the last and setting up the next and interweaving. So 
Marvel gives you a reason to come back for the next movie. And that's, I think, the problem with this Star Wars model that they've tried to pursue from Force Awakens, is that they had all these spin-off Star Wars stories, but there was no real reason to come back for the next one because they weren't building to any kind of end. They were not interconnected. They were set in different timelines. They had different casts. And they were just interesting, hopefully, not always, bits of trivia. And, and your point about sort of what is the rebellion or the resistance, depending on your era, trying to do is a really good one because that's something that they're only just beginning to reckon with. And they've only just begun to reckon with that in some sort of little moments and mostly throwaway lines in The Mandalorian, which suggests that the New Republic doesn't know what it's doing either and is also struggling and is also compromised and limited and can't control, you know, well, obviously it's going to be given its timeline, you can guess what it isn't controlling. But it's it's actually beginning to reckon with this question of what we want. And I think the seeds of some of that were actually present here in The Last Jedi, where you have essentially slave children being abused by a slave master and and, and starting in themselves to, to think about rising up and to think about rebelling and to think about standing up. So this is really the first of the mainstream Star Wars movies to seriously, to any degree, dig into the question of kind of social justice, that term again, um, and, and, and what the rebellion actually means for the people of the galaxy. And I, I think we need to see more of that because there are moments of that kind of stuff scattered through the Marvel Universe, for example, there are moments of trying to save civilians and trying to limit casualties and trying to restore a balance and undo damage that's been done. It's something that Marvel is good at acknowledging and, and something that I think Star Wars previously had struggled with. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, but no, before we, I mean, there's lots of things that I've frantically tried to, to jot down. I was thinking about, um, yeah, I suppose the, 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 the force in and of itself. And what I really liked about this film was it's sort of, if the first film, I was thinking about the titles, you know, Awakens and then the third film, Rise. This one's quite, you know, seems to be rooted in contemplation. And I quite liked the groundedness of, of the of the film. And, and um and actually, my favorite, my my favorite, because I was writing down this idea of kind of, or thinking through it with my digital animation hat on and the forces, energy, and balance. And then I thought, well, it would only exist without visual effects because without them, it's just a piece of grass being brushed across your hand. That was my favorite bit of the film because I, I mean, I found it really funny. I found that parts of the film really funny. Straight. My first note is General Hux, comic relief? Question mark. That's my first. That's my first. Um, and then we have odd little bits of kind of CGI um, uh, holograms. and But I've put the film as it feels a lot more grounded. So you have a lot more. And I think that's why I really like the relationship between Ray and um, Luke in this film, because it's it's established through location shooting and what seemed to be practical. I mean, we were talking b- before we started about industrial light and magic and some of the visual effects. But actually, a lot of the practical effects and, and their relationship is is feels for me believable because it's grounded in 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 the the elements and i and I, so i really I, I was a lot this film was a lot more practical and a lot more and and people have people have written about the relationship the audiences had with um with the new films and there's an article called the analog strikes back which tries to create the relationship between between the sort of um legacy characters carrie fisher harrison ford mark hamill anthony daniels peter mayhew with sort of trying a move towards practical effects. Now, a lot of this is industry rhetoric. Um, this ha- no, but there, I think there's an element of that yeah. there, isn't there? Yeah. Because, I mean, it basically is the thing that people hate most, I yeah, think, yeah. about the prequel trilogy, yeah. is just the the sense that everything is green screen. Everything is, well, not quite weightless, because I think, in fairness, the, the people who worked on the effects were better than that. But you can tell it's green screen. There's, there's, a, there's a tactile sense that this is not reality. Yeah. And, and, and that's what you get. And this was very much, a very deliberate attempt to go back to basics and go back to the essentially aliens in suits, men in suits, yeah. Skellig Michael playing just an incredible role um, for the Jedi, the Jedi base. And, and even the Porgs are dealing with a practical problem. There were too many um, puffins on the island so they essentially animated porgs on top, and that kind of solved the problem. Mm. What, what's the? I, I'll, I don't know the character, but that one moment, I think it's where you see the, the kind of human eye of one of the soldiers behind his mask, just before he falls. To oh, his, her. Her. In the shiny mask. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. That's uh, Captain Phasma, right. Gwendolyn Christie. Ah, excellent. Okay. Um, I recognise that. Recognise that. But that 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 decision to have a very human eye behind mm. that, I thought was really interesting. And uh, you know, you you get a lot of this. With, I think with the what I find interesting about stuff like you know the Bond, the Bond movie, the new newer Bond movies, and even the Mission Impossible's, where they really emphasise the 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 practical effects, and and yet. Casino Royale has more digital visual effects than all the Brosnans put together, and all this, yeah. and, and you get the articles that are called "Back to ba- uh, Casino Royale, Back to Basics," and you're like, really? Because, uh, and so you get a lot of that again with with Tom Cruise, and he's doing his own stunts, you and do. you're like, yeah, but also the, all the green screen and the wires, and the, but you're yeah. right, it was all in camera. You're right, um, but uh, yeah, it's. It, <laughs> do you know what? I, I, I'm I'm convinced this all comes from uh, Christopher Nolan because yeah, he. Yeah, yeah absolutely popularized this yeah. idea of we do it all in camera and it's all for real and i mean he, and he does he does extraordinary stunts the Cor- chris corbold and so on do yeah, incredible yeah, work yeah. for him but he also has paul franklin on speed dial at, at double negative so let's not you <laughs> yeah. know let's not completely yeah. give all the practical effects yeah, yeah. credit I, I feel like christopher christopher nolan the convergence of christopher nolan and the jason bourne movies have a lot to answer for in the way that <laughs> the, the reception of, of digital effects technologies were and actually when you are following a lot of digital visual effects artists on twitter and they talk about this this it's all in camera the practical and there's yeah. sort of a lot of labor and you know this idea of erasure of labor and whose voices and all that sort of stuff yeah. but i really liked the elements of this film that were particularly grounded or or at least that the digital effects and we've talked about this in in episodes before were invisible or there mm. is an emphasis on on the computer animated or the digital um, holograms accenting quite grounded sequences actually yeah. relatively early on and I think it was only really the fight between Ky- probably Kylo Ren when they've come when Kylo Ren and, and Rey are working together where it's sort yeah. of really that for in me the that, yeah and then it's sort of like there's a there's a shift in the in the way that the film's working because I think it invites us into its world through the sort of physicality of that relationship and the haggardness of the background and the the location and the relationship that that's supposed to have with with uh, Luke as this lost soul who's standing at the edge of the world and so I did really like the first sort of 45 50 minutes where it was it was really grounded and, and there was lots of rain yeah, lots of. Well, lots I mean, of, you know, it's Ireland. Sure, isn't it? sure, sure. But um, but I also think I think you're you're right there. But I I do think it's a really key part of the Star Wars aesthetic because it was not the first, but one of the first films to do this kind of space grunge. So along with Alien and then Blade Runner, you know, it was this idea of space and the future not being shiny and perfect, and people didn't wear silver jumpsuits and and live in these pristine white sort of caves and mansions and things, and. Star Wars is much more lived in. It's much more rough yeah. around the edges. It's much more worn down. Uh, and I think they, they kind of get back to that aesthetic here as well. Because again, you know, with the prequels, they're trying to do this sort of high republic, you know, everybody's in beautiful embroidered whatevers. And that's fine, but that actually feels less Star Wars than everybody wearing slightly mismatched uniforms uh, on the rebel side. And the only people who have kind of very straight lines and very smooth surfaces and a complete lack of dust tend to be the Empire or or the First Order. Mm. They're the ones who have these kind of sterile, more futuristic looking environments because that's not... That doesn't say good guy in Star Wars. Yeah. Or, or, or indeed the casino planet, uh, sort of the dwellers yes, up top. Yes, everybody right? in black and white. Because um, that was that was the sequence that really kind of com- got completely redeemed for me this time. I remember that just being, uh, what what's all this about? This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Com- makes complete sense. It's thematically coherent now. And I think the interplay between practical and digital in that sequence is... is, is almost doing three things it's doing everything chris has just said but it's also playing on a the spectacle of the prequels is villainized is this sort of you know hey look at these and then the, the, the sort of original trilogy is reappropriated as as this grimy interior and there's a comment on class there's a comment on privilege and that's all all terrific i wish we could go on more about that but we could go on yeah. about lots of things uh and we'll never get anything else done um I guess we should. We should. We, we. I'd like to ask a couple more questions about some issues um, that the film raises in terms of your book, um, Helen. But just in mm. terms of sort of, uh, you know, having a little geek out. Is there anything else we should mention? Are there any favourite moments um, in the film? Uh, I think I've covered all of mine because I've just got a quick reference into the casino planet. He's ticking it mm. off on his list there. Uh, any favourite moments that strike either of us? Every, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, anything with Leia in it. Um, sure. The 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 attack Holdo's attack on the. On the uh, first order, I think is is an extraordinarily beautiful moment in Star Wars history. I think it's incredible. I also think stuff like you know, crate the 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 sort of salt planet yes. where they have the big action scene at the end. Again, just the design of this mm. film is 
unbelievable. I mean, even by Star Wars standards, I think it's off the chain. And the detail of that attack, so actually, if you look very closely, you will see that Luke isn't leaving any footprints in the in the salt and Kylo is. And just, you know, just that level of care, I think, is is beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, but but you wouldn't notice it in the heat of the film, and certainly neither does Kylo. And and that that sequence contains the line that, that lived with me as I walked out the cinema, point all your guns at that man. Uh, which, <laughs> which, when I first saw I was like, you can't have, surely that's not, you don't leave that in the script. You write that and go, well, I'll think of something else later. But now it makes complete sense because actually it's it's the ludicrousness of the line is the ludicrousness yeah. of the main character. So I'm, or the, of, of Kylo Ren, so I'm up for that. But yeah, it's beautifully designed. Chris, if you will, I think this is the skyfall of, uh, of, 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 <laughs> of Star Wars movies in that it's just so, it's so well designed that you could write you know pretentious um, art critiques of them um, um, <laughs> sure yeah, sure yeah, sure yeah. Well, well funny enough when, when uh, Alan was talking about boiler suits I mean I was instantly thinking that the important role that Moonraker plays in the history of science fiction oh but of course <laughs> that was as, that's an, an, a, enough yeah. Bond references uh, sure. for one week <laughs> yeah um, I have one fun, I mean yeah. I guess uh, uh, this thing about lived I, I hadn't really thought about that that, that um, there's this lived in quality uh, and and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about sort of fictional worlds. So the, the narratives and stories begin and end and plots begin and end, but the fictional world doesn't. We intervene into its life cycle and, and um, this is how video games work. They stick a ruin in the background and you go, oh, the fictional world has a past and how was it ruined? Perhaps it was a war. What do people fight about? Politics, religion? Great, suddenly we've got all this backstory. Um, so this, li- this lived-in quality, this is what I found, again, striking about this second film is that it really fleshed out... And I think science fiction has to has to do this. Um, write, Walton's writing on fictional worlds sort of says that all fictional worlds sort of leave a lot to be assumed by the the reader or the viewer. Whereas science fiction worlds or possible worlds, as he would call them, the world of of what if, the the creative treatment of actuality or the hypothetical, the worlds that are built on the conditional tense, often have to itemize a lot of their their. F- features because possible world that the what if quality of possible worlds is kind of central to their premise so it needs to outline the things about the world in a way that fiction worlds we don't really need to know about the kind of london that bond grows up in because it's not really important but the mechanics of a science fiction world are, are more important and so often possible worlds come come to us in a lot more of a kind of complete form and i really felt that with this you're right the lived in quality i thought was a function of its fictional world beyond the fact that it looks a bit grimy and a bit grubby but there are characters and and this is where the genealogy element plays into it i really like how whenever we watch a star wars film or wherever i watch a star wars film i feel like i'm intervening into a history and i'm intervening into a fictional world that began before i entered into it and will continue after i finished and i really like that about this film is that it sort of started to really if it knowing what it did in the first force awakens knowing what it did there and i think you mentioned it you know it sort of reintroduces wipes the slate clean cleans the palate it's the nice it's the it's the the what is it the sip of the sorbet or something <laughs> the sorbet it's the sorbet there we go the force awakens is the sorbet um and yeah so that makes what the last jedi the flaming zambuka i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but it does something in a way that really and, and again I, I that's what i liked about the it, was, it seemed to be very character-centred, certainly, for the first yeah. half and, and, um, and sort of seemed to flesh out the world a little bit. So uh, I'm excited to revisit it, definitely. It's, it's, always, it's always fascinating to me how much science fiction and fantasy worlds have to world-explain and have yeah. to world-build. Yeah, yeah. and, and I think there is such a thing as too much. I read Gardens of the Moon once and I hated it with a passion. And I'm told that it gets easier once you've read that and everything else makes sense, but I just couldn't. I just I can never go back. Um but other, whereas other things, you know, they introduce what you need to know gradually enough and, and in piecemeal and fashion enough that that you're kind of okay buying these incredibly huge, crazy concepts. You know, it's why people who start with the Silmarillion don't get into the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. But if you start with a Hobbit, you're with it for life. Um, so, yeah, getting that the right balance is is an extraordinary feat of storytelling. I think it's one of the things that's so great about the first Star Wars. Absolutely. Uh, so, Helen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We, 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 we will plug it one more time and, and just ask you um, just to talk about the book a little bit more. So Women versus Hollywood is out. Uh, well, now I think when this podcast is out, mm. all available bookshops, independent and otherwise. Um, what inspired you to write the book? Um, what, how did you come up with the, the notion? I mean, how did you come up with the notion you lived in the world? But how did you, <laughs> <laughs> how, yeah. how did you, how did you yep. become inspired to write the book? Um, <laughs> 
Well, I mean, to be honest, I was I was talking to and my editor on the book, Amanda Keats, is is someone I knew as a film journalist and friend, and didn't actually know she was an editor when we started sort of discussing this stuff. And um, it's something I've been writing about both at Empire and other places. I wrote for the Pool for a while, which was a kind of feministy women's online mag, and. You know, I've been talking a lot about women in film, about where are the women directors, where are the female role models. I remember writing a piece when the first trailer dropped for The Force Awakens and going, oh my God, Leia's a general now. Can you believe this? And trying to convince this quite mainstream publication that, you know, it mattered and that this silly Star Wars movie mattered. Um, so it's, 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 these, are, these are subjects that are close to my heart, basically. And out of talking to Amanda, I basically ended up pitching this idea of essentially a kind of a, his, a, a very fast-paced history of Hollywood, trying to look at sort of different issues, different angles, different moments in, in film history that have kind of gotten us to this place where f- film is as male-dominated as it is. It's over 80% of directors, over 80% of lead characters most years in the top films are men. Why the hell is that? We're 50% of the population. And it wasn't always that way. There were more female, you know, directors and studio heads and screenwriters. Screenwriters in particular, there are stories that they were 50% of screenwriters were women in the silent era. And that's completely changed. And we're still not back up to that level. So what went wrong? So that was kind of my idea was to look at that, was to look at the effect of the studio system, of censorship, um, of the auteur theory, as we as we discussed, of the effect of franchises, to look at equal pay, to look at Me Too, to try and look at these various structural forces that create this world that we live in and this this level of non representation on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a bit much, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a bit much to do. It was absolute. Like I found it absolutely gripping. I managed it in you know in in an afternoon. Um, oh, thank we, you. I mean, we are also in lockdown, but I but I did also manage it in an <laughs> afternoon, and it was a delight and a breeze to read. I really enjoyed it, and I loved how sort of systematically it took apart sort of all the the you know beyond just you know who's making the films, the mm. whole sort of apparatus surrounding the industry and how it's all kind of contributing to the same problem and 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 you know the one thing we haven't touched on is of course critics um we're talking yeah, about sort of yeah. real life cost here and like one of the real life costs of a, of a backlash like of the last jedi is that you know people like pe- the people involved in making the movie are attacked but of course yep. there was also an element in which people weren't even allowed to like the movie you know it's not just the people who made the thing who's the problem part of this global conspiracy is is these these critics who who who, who are pretending to have enjoyed it because they can't possibly pretending. have right you know that's it pretending um, yeah so, so I mean, <laughs> is there an example of that did your colleagues get kind of um hate mail did they get abused on uh, online all that kind of stuff yeah, I mean, I think if, if I remember correctly, it was a, one of the the guys who wrote the Empire Review. So okay. he didn't. I don't. I don't know that he got specific uh, grief for that, and I hope he didn't because he's wonderful. He's um, Ian Freer, who's an incredible Star Wars fan and and Star Wars, frankly, nerd. He he knows everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, absolutely. Female friends have absolutely gotten grief for for defending this film, for liking it. Um, and this is something that you see again and again. In particular, these properties where there is this small passionate anti-SJW, as they'd say, fandoms, who will in particular attack female critics uh, for liking it. And again, particularly people of colour as well. It's not just not just women. Yeah. Um, they will usually not go... They, they may criticise the men as well. They may criticise the white men as well, but they tend to do it in a different way. They tend to sort of respectfully disagree to, to one degree or another. Um, with women, it tends to be an attack on your competence and you're not believed to be competent to write about or like or dislike their films. And and they react quite badly to women having an opinion on this stuff, which is, of course, all that critics have. All we have is opinions. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do think it's an interesting fact. And I think it's, you know, a lot of film critics, If by definition, if you've got into this game, you're probably tough enough to take it, but there is a definite disparity in the kind of criticism that male and female critics get. And that's that says not great things about where we are as a society, basically. Well, I was going to say, if we're thinking about the, the importance of your your book from, I guess, even an, a- an academic point of view as people at the moment, we're sort of thinking about the sil- design of syllabus and, and, and things like this and, and, and how it's, we're sort of trying to decolonize curriculums and, and certainly at my university thinking about the disciplinary canon, this um, white auteur worship, uh, who gets to appear on reading lists, why it's important 
that certain names appear on reading lists. Um, Eurocentrism, who are the case studies? Uh, when was the last time I, the film that I showed had subtitles? Is it possible to teach a film history course entirely through um, white men? Yes, but it's also entirely possible to, to, to teach a history of Hollywood cinema and cinema, in fact, through the, the contributions of women. And so I think your book is 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 tapping into sort of some real institutional issues even in the way we teach this kind of material um questions about the design of 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 our of our undergraduate and postgraduate um syllabi and what we what we include and what we choose to what voices we choose to center and what what contributions are left at the margins and so um yeah i think and we try and certainly in 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 classrooms that and and in departments that i've worked in to think about these as themselves the topics of, of productive classroom discussions um isn't it interesting about the kinds of voices that we hear or the and 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 it seems like the Star Wars movies are a real kind of hotbed for these kinds of of, of questions, um, as well as yeah. So I'm I'm I implore people to to go and 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 buy the book and 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 sort of you know it seems strange, but to kind of think about it, think about what it is saying rather than it you know yeah. Well, honestly, I mean yeah. that that's all I can sort of ask. You know, I I don't expect to to change minds or something, but I, I hope to at least pose some questions and, and pose some maybe facts and figures and things like that, that will get people thinking about it. I hope if there are people who are all, all, are already inclined to, to be thinking about this stuff, I'll maybe give them some ammunition to use in their next debate. But but really, it's just to, to sort of try and present a little bit of a counter narrative. Um, because, because as you say, you know, the canon that that we all watch and that I as a critic have, have watched and, and sort of trained myself up on is almost entirely white men. And and those films are great, and I would, you know, you will pry them out of my cold dead hands. But that doesn't mean there's that's all there is. Um, and this book obviously does only really focus on on Hollywood, just because I was already covering over a hundred years, and I, I just I couldn't face <laughs> I couldn't face doing any more countries. But um, but it, that's an issue as well. You know, are we talking enough about world cinema? Are we talking enough about um, all these other countries, many of which are doing better than we are in terms of the percentage of female filmmakers and so on? So. You know, there's there's a long way to go, but um, I, I just do feel like we're having these yeah, conversations is a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Uh, listeners, of course, fantasy-animation.org remains a f- completely free online educational resource where there are numerous blog entries from academics, a- animators, journalists. Um, we don't m- we don't care what bloodline you're from. We all own the force. Uh, please, please do. Uh, <laughs> send a submission for a yep. blog entry we'd love to hear from you and keep the conversation flowing you can also follow us on twitter facebook instagram and reddit at fan anim research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research um politely dis- and respectfully disagree by all means tell us why we're wrong or tell us why we're right and stroke our egos that's fun too um but take part in the conversation that's the main thing um that's been us for another episode helen thanks so much for coming on the podcast it's been delightful to chat to you thank you been such a pleasure I've learned so much about um, all manner of things, not least actually that Chris is a massive Doctor Who fan, which I'm going to have to, <laughs> to, have to, have to tease him about in about a minute's time. But um, that's been us for another episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.